I'm talking about doing it with my boss. <laughs> I watched that episode with Lewis the other day. Okay, recording. And for whatever reason, my usual recording program isn't working, so hopefully this works okay. Hey folks, Dan here. Before we started, I wanted to give you a quick trigger warning for this episode. While the front half of this interview contains discussions on Tom Fenton's writing process and journey through film, the latter half, beginning around the 34-minute mark, contains discussions of body horror, trauma, and sexual assault, which some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. He's enunciate. I'll just do another one for, for safety. I'll do a second one for safety. <laughs> <clears throat> and try and get their squeaky chair. Hey folks, Dan here. Before we started, I wanted to give you a quick trigger warning for this episode. While the front half of this interview contains discussion on Tom Fenton's writing process and journey through film, the latter half, beginning around the 34-minute mark, contains discussions of body horror, trauma, and sexual assault, which some listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. There. Activate your energy. Welcome to the Activated Authors Podcast, a show where we distill the core principles of what it takes to become a happy, healthy, and productive author, no matter what stage of the journey you're at. I'm your host, Daniel Wilcox. I'm an international best-selling author, as well as an author coach, speaker, and creative entrepreneur. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student of all things productivity, psychology, and human behavior. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. Without further ado, let's dive in. Activated Authors Podcast, a show where we distill the core principles of what it takes to become a happy, healthy, and productive author, no matter what stage of the journey you're at. I'm your host, Daniel Wilcox. I'm an international best-selling author, as well as an author coach, speaker, and creative entrepreneur. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student of all things productivity, psychology, and human behavior. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. Without further ado, let's dive in. What is up, Activators, and welcome to another episode of the Activated Authors Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by the incredible Thomas Fenton. Thomas Fenton is an American screenwriter whose writing credits include Saw 4, I Spit on Your Grave 2, Slay Purview on Crypt TV, Chain Letter Draft, and The Max Payne Draft. He is also the author of the screenwriter's handbook, How to Write a Terrifying Screenplay in 10 Bloody Steps. Thomas has worked with Paramount Pictures, DC, and Lionsgate, to name a few, and on top of an active writing and directing career, also takes time to teach future screenwriters at workingscreenwriter.com. Thomas, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I am super excited to have you, mostly because I'll be completely honest up front that I am a bit of a noob when it comes to sort of screenwriting and that side mm -hmm. of stuff, but I am a lover of all things <clears throat> that come from creativity and writing. So I am very, very excited to kind of dive into your brain and get your perspective on a lot of um, stuff. But I kind of, I wanted to start this interview firstly by looking into where it all began for you. What was it for Thomas Benson that kind of got you into writing and into creativity? Where did that all begin? That's a great question. I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. I'm from Rochester, New York, which is a small town uh, in upstate New York, right on the Canadian border, right on Lake Ontario. But more importantly, it's the home of Eastman Kodak Company, which may not mean a lot to people today. But back in the day, the Eastman Kodak Company was the foremost um, image-driven uh, company on the planet. They made all the film that was shot in movies, all the film at Super 8 film, all of the pictures 
the uh, there were literally there's there's a term which is a Kodak moment, which is to say that you're grabbing a moment in time to, to cherish, and that's a Kodak moment. My father worked for Kodak. He produced all the paper. If you got if you when back in the day you take a picture, send it, send the film in, and they'd return it to you on little pictures, and that he made the paper uh, for 34 okay. years, and he. Um, he uh, always told me to be creative and uh, he would bring home Super 8 film cameras and things for me to shoot with, which is a great format, by the way. And uh, I saw Star Wars after that, around when I was 10. And after that, it's been, it's been game on, man. So <clears throat> I started as a crew member. I started as a PA. I worked as a grip and as a key grip and as a gaffer. Uh, I graduated music videos. I directed a bunch of music videos, lots of commercials and uh wrote spec scripts in my spare time when i was living in cleveland ohio and uh and got signed in hollywood while i was in cleveland because i wrote um it's over my shoulder here it's, it's a graphic novel series that i wrote as, as an exercise <laughs> as an in my basement and it sold and it did really well and uh dc got it humanoids through dc got it and then it's been game on ever since man so do you still remember that first experience with a camera and do you remember specifically what it was that you you caught on camera what was the first sort of thing that you shot to to kickstart yeah it, it was uh with a, with a friend of mine named larry and uh it was uh frankenstein versus the wolfman it was in our backyard my brother played the cop and he was five and i was eight i think or nine and he he killed us both with a toy gun and it was great <laughs> And, does that and, come I still, and I have that film somewhere. It's in my closet over here. I've got that oh, film somewhere. I love that. Must be like fishing that out and just sort of jumping back. And I think that's that's yeah. always been the beauty, hasn't it? Of you know, since the film format has has come out, is that being able to recapture that moment in time. And Absolutely. Go back to it whenever you want to. It's made of plastic, so it's not going to go anywhere for a while. Whereas yeah. you see videos, if you save any videos you shot, maybe ninety six or ninety four, you can't really watch those anymore because the the digital's the codecs have changed. Right? Yeah. The compression and decompression software. Mm -hmm. yeah. And as you say, there's definitely a sort of a path and a journey that you have to go through as a filmmaker to almost earn your stripes to kind of step up. And I've got um, a friend of mine that used to do a lot of work sort of in British film, working as like a, a runner and a assistant yeah. director and trying to make his strides in there. How do you think getting into the film industry has changed over the last sort of couple of decades in terms of you oh. know trying to find your feet as a, as a screenwriter. You don't have to go back decades, man. You can go back just a few years. It, it's uh, somebody asked me yesterday, what, cause my first film I made, um, it's called striking point. It was when I wanted to be Shane black and John Woo. I wanted to be uh, a mixture of the two. I wanted I guess I wanted to be Shane Woo. And uh, I made that movie for 50 grand. We shot it in 12 days. It ended up doing really well because it was kind of a violent um, international reservoir dogs. Uh, it came out at the same time that Tarantino's movie did, and it did really, 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 really well. And um, but it was the last bastion of VHS blockbuster movies. And, and by then, you had to shoot a movie on film. We shot that film on thirty-five millimeter, which was brutal because it was a one-to-one -one ratio, which means every shot, every take I had to use. It was it was brutal. But anyway. Um, the special effects were done with by the guy who did RoboCop, though, so it was really violent, and people blew nice. up all the time. It was great, um, big production value for that. And um, but then you had to you had to shoot a film, take it to a festival, say Sundance or a Slam Dance, and then hope for the best. Now, what we did was we pre-sold the idea to a, a distributor who was a fan of the script, so that did okay. But now, I'm talking like two or three years now because of COVID. 
um, people ask me all the time, do I have to live in LA? And I said, well, it helps a lot, but at the same time, you can shoot a film for 50 G's on, on, on your phone, right? Your mm -hmm. phone, which shoots eight, 4K with some type of audio setup. I'm sure they plug into these things uh, and put it up on Amazon uh, Direct, not Amazon Prime, Amazon Direct, which is a, a portal. And you can like get it to an audience, you know? So now the, the good news and the bad news is Everyone can do that. So now what you have mm -hmm. is back then you had people shout, you had a few people shouting in the room to try to get some exposure. Now you have everyone shouting in the room to get exposure. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of voices. So the idea of having a Blair Witch project, which was a breakout film or mm -hmm. an El Mariachi, which is a breakout film. These are all under $10,000 films. I think, I think Blair Witch was like 20, but that's more rare. In fact, even Saw, Saw is a good example, million dollar film, right? shot in 19 days or 17 days in that one location over at, at the studio in LA breaking out. It's rare. It's rarer because there's so much content. Yeah. So that's, that's the difference. It's literally, I was trying to think, I was, I was trying to think of this analogy the other day that right now we are, we are the difference between the Lumiere brothers shooting in the black Dahlia and shooting in the nineties. There's a huge difference between the two. And there's a lot of, there's a vast amount There's a hundred years, but the difference between shooting in the nineties and shooting now is, 10 times greater, but half the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I Am think I that sort of um, seems to transcend across a lot of industries over the last sort of few years. I mean, even, yeah. you know, taking from where I'm from, the publishing industry, how how that has gone from having the gatekeepers of sort of traditional publishing and kind of having to go through those traditional channels in order to get to big audiences to yeah. obviously with the internet, with Kindle Direct Publishing and all this self-publishing, yep. like anyone can have yep. a voice out there. And obviously there are, there are pros and cons to that. There are the people that, would un, would wouldn't have otherwise managed to find their shot finding their shot but then there are people that sometimes don't worry too much about that quality content going out that just put stuff out that still manages to find an audience it's, it's a, it, a weird it does economy. it does it does i think the scattergun effect um is, is I've, I've never been a big believer in that I, I think it's important to focus on one thing and do it really well yes and 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 work that thing i think there's a lot of people out there a lot of guys that come to mind and girls come to mind that make movies that are literally just trying to get it on a Facebook direct uh, Facebook play, I think, and mm. and make. I mean, they're shooting these things for like seven or eight grand. I think you should probably save up your money and shoot something higher quality, and then work it right. Really try to get out there, get some advertising. Because I think I think I think um, quality still stands on its own. It's just you have to work a little harder, but the opportunities are greater. So it kind of mm. it kind of levels off, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Going into obviously more specifically your stuff, in terms of screenwriting, where was your what was your first big break and, and how did that come about? My first big break had to have been um I gotta grab it. It's it, oh, okay. it, it, uh, it's this book, it's called The Dominion. It's a it's a trade paperback. Um it's a very beautiful book. Uh was it's it's about it's about a, a cop in New Orleans, which is uh, American culture wise. New Orleans is kind of the epicenter of all religions. All religions show up there with Catholicism and Judaism and, and voodoo and voodoo and everything. And this cop is, uh, um, is murdered by supernatural forces because he's getting too close to this grand conspiracy and he's resurrected to be half man, half angel. Okay. And so he sees the coming of Armageddon. So he, it's kind of like the exorcist meets the X-Files. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first sale I had and that, and that was, uh, uh, but the first big script I wrote that got me a lot of, um, noise that didn't sell, it was called blood of legend. It was King Arthur versus Prince Dracula. Nice. 
and it did and it got me signed multiple times and it got me every it got me i met everyone in the in town and got a lot of work from it but um what i'd like to point out is that dominion uh was written in my basement in cleveland uh and and, and i finished blood of legend when i moved to la in 01 but I wrote it uh, not knowing it was going to do anything, and, and then it was sent out as a sample, and this company ended up buying it, Humanoids, which is a French uh, comic book company. You may be familiar with it. It's, it was started by Mobius, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> beautiful, nice company, and DC used the, uh, picked up and released it in the States. Um, you can write something and sit on it, and years later, sell it. Yeah. Because um, there's no, there's no uh, if it's good, you might have to spruce it up a little bit, mm-hmm. right? But like Blood of Legend, I think someday I'll sell that damn thing. I think, uh, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if, if ever if I ever get a deal at Amazon, I'm sure they would make it, you know. But that's that's how it works. But I, I worked it, man. I uh, I also uh, I, I wrote. Uh, I went to every single film function I could. I met with everybody I possibly could in L.A. And I I uh, I wasn't worried about getting signed in my early career. I was worried about being great at writing. And then I figured that. I'll get signed. Mm. Oh, I love that. Those are my first big breaks. <clears throat> yeah. So where did that mentality for you come from? Because, you know, there's there's a real difference sometimes between people that have that kind of, I really want to focus on the quality of the product, make it the best. So obviously then, you know, you're putting your best and everything into something and you have more of a chance of making it versus the people that pop out lots and lots of stuff. And there's a very sort of, it, it's it's just a very, very different mentality. So have you always been that way? And, and where do you think that came from? Um, I, I struggled with that because I, I'm, I'm heavily dyslexic and I, I talk about this in my book. Um, writing is very hard for me. Reading is very hard for me. It takes uh, three times the effort to get half the work done that you can do if you don't have dyslexia. But I always looked at that as a positive, not a negative. I think it's because I think in visual terms, mm. I thought if I could just capture what's in my brain, uh, uh, I could put it on paper and it would be quality. And I think... Um, you know, I have this terrible, I, even through the book, uh, someone pointed this out online that there's so many, and this was proved by multiple editors. Um, there's still typos in it. And one of the, my favorite typos in the book is that I'm the author of I Spin on Your Grave. Nice. A very different Dude. film. Yeah. Yeah. Very different. The porno version. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, um, uh, but I think, you know, it's hard for me because uh, I'm also a, a big believer in completing a subject. And I, again, this is something I talk about in the book, which is it's, it's paramount to uh, finish your draft, right? You always have to finish a draft because if an unwritten screenplay is possibly the best screenplay of all time, a finished screenplay is open itself up to notes and notes are like getting kicked in the face with a, a steel covered Kodiak boot. It's no <laughs> fun, but it's a necessary evil to being uh-huh. a writer. Um, but I think, and also, you know, you only get one, and and I really stress this also. You only get uh, one one chance to make a first impression. So mm-hmm. when you're going out to when you're going out to agencies and you're going out to producers, you really want to come off well. So you want your best foot forward, man, and like really have that script singing, be really visual and really strong, and uh, that will get you noticed if you keep ahead. It you know that's what oh. I think. So I'm assuming, you know, I think it's a very assumption that you've you've got a pretty thick skin for for criticism, oh, yeah. feedback, for notes. 
where did yeah. that thick skin come from because has that oh. always kind of just been who you are or is that something that's been developed no i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't say thick skin at all again this is the book have you have you have you read the book by the way Screen i haven't had a chance i'm afraid no oh it's right here i happen to have a copy of it right here it's great I, I have got it on order it will be coming through soon okay, okay, time go. for the interview <laughs> there's a story no, it's all good so uh but if you if you don't have a copy pick it up it's awesome yes. um there's a story like in this book well. where i was at fox thank you I was at Fox and we had, uh, we were developing a script called Nemesis, which is, there's a, there's a chappy named uh, Elliot Ness who was a big deal in the States. He was the guy, he's, he's, he's portrayed by Kevin Costner in the film Untouchables, directed by uh, Brian De Palma, which, which chronicles his fight against Al Capone, which is this notorious gangster from Chicago. Well, years later in the true story, Elliot Ness moved to Cleveland, Ohio and became uh, the safety director there where he hunted down the, America's first true serial killer. A guy named the Torso Killer who killed people and and only left their torsos behind, cutting off their foot, legs and arms and heads. And it's a true story. So it's it's seven meets the untouchable. So we we option this book, my friend and I. We go out. We, I do the screenplay. And it's really cool. You know, it's the birth of it's a birth of forensic sciences. Uh, Elliot Ness creates a, a cadre of fellows that are experts at weaponry and 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 Scientology and not Scientology science. And like it's a really spectacular. Um, I don't want to say steampunk, but it's very of that 1930s, 1940s, you know, you know, it's got that seven vibe to it. So we do this thing and we get a lot of attraction and we get, we get, we get it set up at a company at Fox. I'm not going to be specific of who it was, but I'm at this meeting and I think this script is great, man. Like, cause it's, it was based on this book. And so I, I all the heavy lifting had been done. So I just kind of shaped it into a, a really tight screenplay and, and the, the executive, I can't remember what he was saying, but he was giving me all of these notes that I did not agree with. And I, and, and this is my tough skin story. So uh, the, guy, the, the meetings, there's like, tw- there's like nine people in the room. With this. The executive goes, oh, oh, Tom, Tom, are you okay? Because I was like flush. And I said, I said, man, I'm just absorbing your notes. Because like, I just, I, I get really offense, take offense when you come up with these these notes, but you just have to, you have to take them in because you can't send and receive at the same time. You have to take it in, mull it over. Uh, my, my favorite thing back then, because due to proximity to an Arby's, I used to go to Arby's after these meetings. So I treat myself to a big beef and cheddar, which is a terrible, nice. I can't eat that anymore because <laughs> I have a low sodium diet, but you know, uh, you know, you have to, I still take things really personally. I'm not going to lie and say I've got this. I don't have a tough skin, but I've got a skin that's used to being kicked. Maybe, maybe that's the same thing. I'm not sure. We just had a take go south the other day. We had a, we what, we thought we had a deal with another company, and they just decided to pass out of the blue. And I was shocked because I thought we were all on the same page. But you just have to persevere. You have to kind of. It's okay to get knocked down. You just have to get back up. I know that sounds very cliche. Yeah. We just move on to the next thing. Yeah. And is it? And again, sort of my my understanding of the screenwriting industry and sort of the film itself is very sort of minimal at this point. But it's something that I definitely look to expand to at some point in the future with some of some of um, my properties and, and to potentially looking at turning those into other things. Would you argue that it is a case of playing the numbers game when it comes to this kind of industry and putting more stuff out to try and option that, or do you stick to one um, property and then really try and shop that and find the home for it where it should live? No, well, you you said you said two different things at once. There's, there's, there's optioning one thing is a completely different from specking. So I will always have five things on the go, right? I'll have I'll have two specs I'm working on. I'll have an option going, and I'll have a video game treatment. 
that's four, right? I can't remember yeah. what the fifth thing was. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I, maybe I overstepped my bounds there, but I'll always have something on the go. Um, or I'll do, I'll, you know, somebody will ask me to do a take, right? They'll say, mm-hmm. they'll say we're doing a movie on um, my favorite. My, my like a take is, for instance, when um, a movie will come out and they'll say, well, we want something similar to that. What do you have? And like, I'll do a take for. Uh, that, uh, you know, I don't want to be specific because I, I, I don't want out this company that's looking for a movie just like the movie that just came out. But um, you have a lot of things on the go. But you, but again, it's back to quality control. It all has to be really good. But when you when you option a book like what we do at Nemesis and we did some video games and stuff, you know, a lot of the heavy lifting is done already. So you can kind of just stitch it all together. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that like it's easy. It's not easy. I've just done it so many times. It, 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 it's easier for me because I'm used to doing it. But I think it's important to always be busy. Always be developing. In fact, right now, um, I have I, I soft pitched a producer on an idea, and, and she loves it. And I don't have I don't have, I don't know what the, I just pitched her one line. I said a movie about blankety blank. And she goes, "That's great, that's great." I said, <laughs> "Well, I got to think of this now. I don't know what to do now." So um, you always want to have you always want something on the go, right? Mm. And when it comes to your writing process and putting some stuff down, I heard it on um. Uh, an interview with you that you mentioned a friend of yours, Pendentium, says the worst thing you can do is face a blank page. Are you yes. okay to elaborate a little bit on that and sort of tell us yeah, how that's... That you get to the words? Well, you know, prior to, I, was, I met Penn in um, 09 and I'd already been established. I was already had multiple deals. I was always work. I was already working. We had set up a script with uh, a company to do a TV series based on Little Red Riding Hood as a werewolf hunter, a present day, kind of like a uh, Laura Croft Thing, and Penn was the showrunner on it, and I was the creator of it. And um, I, meeting Penn Denton was like seeing the sun for the first time. The guy's <laughs> an Oscar winner. He, he worked on back. He, wrote, he produced Backdraft. He wrote Print of Thieves for Kevin Costner. He's done a ton of stuff. Tons of TV. He had Trilogy Entertainment. They did Poltergeist: The Legacy. They did Twilight Zone. Tons of stuff. And the guy was is is uh, taught me uh, really on how to card how not to face a blank page, like I said, because you want to, there's so much research that comes into uh, doing a screenplay, right? You always want to, uh, you want to you have these, this, the, the list that turns into cards, cards that turn into an outline, outline that uh, turns into pages. So you just want to be prepared. I used to sit down and be rock and roll about it. I used to go, I'll just write it, man. I don't know. I got, a, I got an idea for a poster. I got a title and I got, a, I got, a, I got a, a like like my like the spec that got me the Saw franchise, working on Saw franchise was it's called Prodigal Son. It was a um, it was about a freelance exorcist who didn't realize he's the Antichrist, and um, it was about a guy becoming the devil. And, uh, and I thought, well, that's a great idea, man. So I'll just write that. And I said that, and I said it. I'm, it's one of those scripts that worked out because it got set up at Beacon. It ended up getting derailed because of the remake of the Omen back in '06, but. Um, it was, it was one of those lucky ones, but if you just sit down and write and just go, I'm a wing it, man. I don't know where, I don't know where that first act is, man. I'm a, I'm a nonconformist, man. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. You're going to be writing yourself. You're going to run out of steam by the mid of the second act, which is about page 45. You got, and you're going to write the ending and it's going to be crap. Penn taught me to take my time to think things through, to create these things called islands of sanity, which is, that's his term, which are these, these, these scenes that you know are going to work. And now mm. I'm going to make another scene that I know is going to work. And I just got to stitch that together. And stitching, yeah. by the way, is another, another word I learned from him, stitching things together. Um, yeah, good guy, smart guy. He has a book called Ride the Alligator, Riding the Alligator. I love uh, it already. Excellent. <laughs> well, have you? 
I love it already. It's the title itself sounds amazing. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah. Ron Howard was one. Ron Howard loves him. Uh, Shane loves him. Everybody loves Pendentium, man. To know Pendentium <laughs> is to love Pendentium. And I'm going to send him the link to this so he so he knows how I feel about him. Now he knows I like him. I love it. I love it. I also like one thing that I'm noticing as I'm talking to you is how how um, I don't know what the word is. How trained for want of a better word there's definitely a better word but you are in terms of like when you come up with these ideas and you're sort of saying about all these different films and different things you already have like whatever that elevator pitch is logged down and you're so specific in such a small amount of time now, i know that particularly again working with authors one of the things that i see a lot of people struggle with is if you ask someone what their book is about you'll get sort of like a five minute monologue on on what their book is and i don't think enough people understand the importance of condensing that and coming up with the core value of what that idea is are you right just to kind of speak on how you yeah yeah it. i mean it, it's what william shakespeare said brevity is the soul of wit mm-hmm. so when you're a screenwriter you only have i was hoping i could put my hands on a screenplay that i wrote but you only have uh, an average of 120 words per page to tell the entire story in that on that page so you have to be very specific in your placement and then when you when you're communicating in hollywood uh, especially over the phone it's a phone-based business especially now after covid you always want to just give them, you want to give them the steak, not the sizzle, right? You want to be very specific, you know, um, and I think that, bless you, I think. My dog, I. Oh. Yeah, yeah, sure, it's your dog. Sure, blame <laughs> it on the dog. Um, you, 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 you want to make sure, like in all things that you do, is clear, concise, and purposeful. And, and it's a struggle for me because that's the last, if, if you knew me in real life, you'd say, you know, you don't open your mail. I'm like that's true i don't open my mail well, i'm getting i'm better now about it but um you want to be uh uh you you want to be able to communicate that's that's what it comes down to that's the screenplays that's what it is screenplay is also a, a visual medium the challenge there i find and this is, happens with every single the class that i teach um i teach this when i have time I, there's no set schedule um because when i'm prepping a film i can't possibly do it in fact i got we had a class scheduled uh last late last year and i was called to new york to do some body and fender work on a an hbo movie and i could not teach it from my hotel room i thought i was not servicing any of the clientele so these things kind of come and go but i make sure that when i have an author in there who's got a novel is that um you know, it, it's not the it's not the uh, uh, the qu- uh, quantity of words, it's the quality of words that you're mm-hmm. using, and we don't have the possibility in film unless you're doing unless you're really good at writing narration, which nobody that I know is. Um, you don't have an inner monologue. If you read Stephen King's books, they're spectacular. And also yes. another book I'd suggest anybody read is called On Writing by Stephen King. Uh-huh. Um, it yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? He, uh, he has all these inner monologues. You can't do that with film. So you have to be very, very specific. And, you, and you'll see, you know, <clears throat> one thing I'm, I'm, I'm fond of saying, and, and I think I'm correct in this, is that, you know, creativity is a muscle. Yes. Like all yes. muscles, the more you use it, uh, the stronger it becomes. Um, and I think it's unwise when you're first starting off to say, well, my stuff's not as good as blankety blanks, Stephen King's or um, in a novel or, or uh, Walter Hill screenwriting or William Goldman, mm-hmm. uh, but they've been doing a lot longer than you have. And when, when people, people hear me talk like, oh, you're so good at like just nailing what the movie's about. Well, that's because I've been doing it for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And believe me, I'm, my famous war story is I was called in a Gail Ann Hurd's office. She produced The Walking Dead, among other movies, and she was James Cameron's partner for years, Determinator. They had a movie for me called The Hell Cop with The Rock, Dwayne Johnson in it, and I was going to work on that. 
And uh, they, they gave me the comic books. I went home. I came home to the take. A take, a pitch is supposed to be 15 minutes, tops. It was my first, it was my first pitch. I want to make sure I covered all the bases, man. I was going to make sure that you got to hire me, man. I'm like, the, I'm like the guy for this. I pitched, I'm not, this is no joke. This is true. I pitched the first act in 30 minutes. The first act is supposed to be 30 minutes. So I'm pitching it in real time. How did you <laughs> manage to do that? She excused herself from the meeting. She goes, look, it, it wasn't Gail Ann Hurt. It was an underling. She said, well, I got to go to lunch, man. We've been here for like, you know, and I said, well, okay, well, I'm never going to have that happen again. So then I learned to pitch uh, uh, and, and communicate the way, the way you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, time, and, uh, time and time again, time and time again, over and over again and learn how to do it. Yeah, I, I, it's one of the things I love about running this show and just speaking to people from like different disciplines, different backgrounds is some of the just the universal troops, like the creativity being a muscle thing. It's just it's something that I try and tell so much to so many people, because a lot of first time authors will pin the success of who they are as an author on whatever their first book is. Yeah. And it kills me because I'm like, but you've written one book, like write the right. next one, build that muscle practice, like learn all the lessons right. that you need to like it's it's the long-term game and it's just yeah. it's just one of those things that i think a lot of people just really I, I i don't know what it is about creativity that people think it's this inherent gene i think there's certainly an element of people are predisposed towards being more creative but in terms of how skilled you are in your discipline that that comes from practice or at least that's kind of how i found it, it, Would it you... yeah it comes from it, there, there's two there's two things i believe there's the muse then there's your process mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. your muse like um you know, I have a, uh, uh, well, I'll have about 25 movie ideas a week for different films. 20 of them suck. Three of them are pretty cool. Two are epic and one's worth working on. And then I, I've developed a process and, I, and I, I talk about this heavily in my book because this is what I think people don't realize is that screenwriting and writing itself is a job. I People think, well, that's something you do when you're trying to relax. You see the keyboard and tap away. There's nothing more exhausting than constant thought. And so the best way to do that, to, to make sure your productivity is, is, is up there, it's, I call it the rule of three. It's in the book. The rule of three is this, because to keep yourself from being long-winded, no, no, no scene should be over three pages. No dialogue should be over three, three lines. No... Um, no action line, which is the, you know, he pulls the gun out and grabs the car and drives off. Should be more than three lines. And you should write three pages a day. And in one month, you'll have a screenplay, right? Now, those are, it's, it's, a, it's a rule, not a law. Because even if you look at the Saw films, when we were writing uh, dialogue for Billy, the little doll, that dude talked for like four pages. You know, he's threatening <laughs> people left and right. Yeah. So it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just a rule. And I think what's important is that I'll get to your point about the one piece of work <laughs> is that is that, you know, conf- working in confines is the best thing for you because unbridled creativity is no creativity at all because you're literally not going to accomplish anything. So if you if you work within parameters, um, you can get a lot done. And when people write one thing like I did that, too, man, my first script, The Whisper Man, I wrote that in like 1989. And I was like, this is it, man. This is the best thing ever. And it's junk. You know, when you, it's junk. It was not even a good idea. I don't know. I, I can't even tell you what it's about. It's a great title, Whisper Man. I, mm-hmm. that's kind of title. But uh, I, I always tell people, you know, before you seek representation, before you seek the world, you need to have five specs in the same wheelhouse. What's a wheelhouse? Wheelhouse is I write horror action, so I just write horror action. I, I, have, I have a drama. Uh, we spent 10 years on it. I had it set up. 
people go, and I took a lot of heat from the, in the press for writing this dr- dramatic film, but uh, not a lot of press, not a lot of heat, but some, some people. Um, but this is what I'm known for, and I'm really good at it. So that's why I get called because I have five good examples, you know. And I, so when you start off your career, you should also have five good examples, not one, not two, because when when um, because I, I think it also comes down to like. You finish something, you turn it in. Look how good I am at this. Check this out. Read this. This is awesome. This is fantastic. Best thing you've ever read. Best thing. I get that all the time. I have a script consulting service that I run when I have time. People hire me. I consult in their screenplays. And, they, and a lot of them are terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're supposed to be. I go, good for you. This is terrible. It's got good bones. We'll make it work. You know. Um, and if they apply themselves, it does really well. Uh, I had one, one of my... Uh, students just got signed by a major agency off the script that we worked on together because the script had good bones. I think a lot of people, they layer on contraptions and they think that's going to solve for a bad plot or bad story or bad characters. Mm. It doesn't, you know, Um, I think writing novels, I I have a novel, by the way, it's called men of the hill. It's about two legionaries in Caesar's army as they attacked uh, during the, during the uh, Celtic wars. I'm on, I started it. Five years ago, I'm on page two. <laughs> it's it's very hard for, to transition from screenwriting to write, not writing a novel. By the way, that's what I think. Yeah, they are they are sort of very different feeling, I guess. Just even, they are you know, how you how you sit down and do it. Um, but I definitely want to jump onto some of the source stuff because I've got a, a few questions about that, and obviously, like it's brought up as a fair theme during this conversation. But before I get to that, since you mentioned you know working on other people's screenplays and stuff as well, sort of um, yeah. consulting. Yeah, what are some of the very common mistakes that you see in screenplays that are quite easily rectified arguably oh um pacing is one because this 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 harkens back to trying to tell me everything and 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 not show me anything that's that's one um where you want to you know and you never describe in a screenplay because no one wants to no one wants to read your screenplay they want to see your screenplay Mm -hmm. you know so you make as visual as possible uh the other thing is um not putting the work in because um, uh, the stuff I work on is genre stuff. So no one's sending me um, like the picture I mentioned right now is, is the, uh, the, the one that I was getting. We had Kevin Spacey at one point before he went nuclear. We had Hugh Jackman in it was it's called DeLorean. It was a story of John DeLorean, the making of the DeLorean sports car in the 80s. It was the true story of the man who took the 80s for a ride. And uh, we had it set up and it was a you know, this my agent said, if you win an Oscar for this, this is going to be the strangest career trajectory of all time. I said, I know, I know I will be, but now it ended up falling apart because that's how, that's how Hollywood works. But, you know, we spent a lot of time and I was able to bring to bear. I learned so much writing that screenplay about characters and people in the eighties and trying to like the Irish. And it's, it's a fascinating story. If you don't know, it's a fascinating story. I was able to pour a lot of that stuff into the, into my genre writing and kind of elevate my genre writing. Cause I'm a big believer in characters are number one. We talked about poltergeist offline just a minute ago. Yes. The reason why poltergeist works so well is because you want to hang out with the freelings. You mm-hmm. want to like, they're cool, man. Like they're, they're good. They're a nice couple. They smell grass. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they jump off the bed and pretend they're d- jumping off a high board and they're building a <laughs> pool in the backyard. They're good people. Like you want to hang out with those folks. And I think that's the other thing I see. People turn in, they're not characters, man. They're people saying the dialogue, mm. but they're not characters. There's no one I can get behind. And I, not to run off on a tangent here, but you asked, um, I was walking through Sony Studios with Jason Clark one time, and Jason said, because we were developing this script with, uh, with Dean Devlin, and um, 
He said, man, this script's like one of the best action. You write the best action is about witchcraft warfare, witchcraft civil war between two witchcraft factions. Nice. And these cops that are trying to stop it. It was Blade Runner with witchcraft. And uh, he goes, this is some of the best action I've ever read, man. Some of the best action I've ever read. But your characters are terrible. They're ter- Nobody cares. So, so after I, so we, we left lunch. I went in the corner and cried for half an hour. You don't know what he's talking about, man. My characters rule. Like they didn't rule. They were terrible. <laughs> And so I took that to heart and really worked on characters. Story, character. Uh, and these are, these are things I see. I, I don't see people develop this stuff. Uh, but, that comes, but that comes in the rewriting. You know, writing is in the rewriting. You know, I think uh, another misconception is that they think, well, they can write a draft and they're done. Man, I did like, I can't even tell you. I've, I want to say 40 drafts of the script one time, just constantly sharpening it, sharpening it, sharpening mm-hmm. it constantly. And it gets better every time you rewrite it. That's the other thing that people don't realize. Rewriting is in, in writing is in the rewriting. That's the end of that. That there, man. Okay, so like I say, we've we've circled around Saw a fair chunk. Like this is definitely sort of um, one of the things that I wanted to quiz your brain on because I think Saw was really my first. Uh, the Saw franchise itself was my first sort of entry into horror films, and particularly sort of the serial, the series horror films when I was about yeah. um, maybe 15, 16. and. You know, you've you handled the, the screenplay for Saw 4 and I I don't know how you did it because it goes from, obviously, you know this, but the story from uh, Saw 1 is very, very small. It's very intimate. It opens up into number two. You kind of get the bigger picture on, you know, what's going on with John Kramer and everything in Saw 3. And it wraps itself up in such a way that it feels whole. And then with Saw 4, it's opening this wound, but not just opening this like new wound, but sort of entering an entirely different world of, you know, a new star in the making, sort of the mm-hmm. bigger, wider world of this sort of um, story, I guess, probably better word for it than that. But um, you know what I mean? But so how how did you firstly come into, you know, working on the Saw franchise? And then what was your process in terms of taking that and sort of handling that to then expand it into the universe it became? Well, the, uh, the, the fun thing about Saw was um, I worked on, um, I was with Saw for seven, eight, six years. Uh, I worked, I wrote a three and um, I wrote the four and I wrote a seven and Tobin Bell and I wrote a nine. We conceived a nine together. Nice. I uh, saw, what, long story short was that I mentioned Prodigal Son earlier, which was a, uh, a spec I had written, and Orrin Coolis and Mark Berg had an idea of taking advantage of April, May, June, July, August. So the six, six, six that was coming up in 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 two thousand six was January, February, March, April, May, June, June, right? June sixth. Yes. They said, "Well, let's take advantage of that. Let's take Fenton's script because um, I was being rep by uh, Evolution at the time, and we'll we'll adjust it accordingly." And he'll he'll kind of we'll, and Joaquin Phoenix was going to be in it, and. Uh, uh, so I adjusted the script accordingly, and then they were doing Saw at the time. I remember, I remember this well. Uh, we were developing another film at Universal called Creator, uh, a kind of a Frankenstein, a, um, a modern day Frankenstein. And, uh, <clears throat> and 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 a guy, a producer named uh, Greg Hoffman, who you might know from the credits of that film, um, wonderful man, said, uh, you know. Um, he was giving me notes. He's saying, oh, I'm shooting the Saw movie. And I, and I did a set visit uh, down at that studio and saw Tobin Bell laying on the ground and thought, well, this is interesting. And they said, well, it's going to be a million-dollar direct-to-video movie, and, and it's cool. Uh, we, we saw the movie, and I, I remember this well. Um, Tobin gets up at the end of the movie and says, you know, 
the key to that the key to that lock is in the that bathtub or whatever he says and game over and slams the door and we all just went jesus that's cool and i remember peter block getting up from uh from lionsgate saying you know we don't have anything planned for this evening but here's my amex black card we're all going to go down to the highlands and go drink so we all nice. marched down to the highlands which is a place down uh down there and we and we 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 just we had a great time and then two was two was a script called the De- the the desperate which Darren had written and they adjusted it accordingly to make it a saw two. And then I remember talking to Greg Hoffman saying, you know, nice job with two. It doesn't suck. He said, it doesn't suck. And I said, well, you know, I've got ideas for three. And he goes, he goes, yeah, man. Um, yeah, let's talk Monday. And, and that was a Thursday. I saw him in the kitchenette at uh, twisted and Monday morning, I get a call from my, my manager Gates. And he said, you know, Greg died over the weekend. And we were all just shocked because he was a really young, healthy cat. He was in his 40s, early 40s. And it was a big blow to the industry, man. Total loss. Um, brutal. Brutal loss to the industry. Really nice guy. We treated me with a lot of respect when I was a nobody. Um, not that I'm a somebody, but when I was really nobody, he was very kind to me. And I really, uh, he's a great guy. So i try to keep this brief, but then I get a call from Oren and he, he goes, look at man, we we're going to take a week. We we're going to take a year off because of Greg, but we want you to write Saw 3 and just we're going to expand the universe and we're going to close this thing and this chapter or whatever. I said, fine. So I went off and I wrote a, I wrote a treatment, which wasn't the right treatment for that movie. It was, a, it was, uh, it was really wrong. It was, a, it was a game, a maze game where they were trying to figure out who's going to be the next big serial killer of all these people that are stuck in this this maze and which one had the, in them to become a serial killer and so it really wasn't it wasn't right and lee came back in lee had just finished up a movie at um called dead silence and james was done with death sentence with bacon james uh, lee came back and 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 i kind of like stepped aside because his his franchise then they brought me back for four uh and that was what they call a bake-off which is they fired they hired four, they, they they hired four scripts and we all wrote different scripts and uh, they took pieces and parts, put them together, and we rewrote all that and, and became Saw. Because the idea was that they didn't know they were going to kill John Kramer or not. They couldn't mm-hmm. figure it out. And I, I applaud them for doing it because Jane, John Kramer had cancer since the first one. Yeah. You know? So, <laughs> he was not healthy. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. And so after that, uh, I got in a spot of trouble, personal trouble. So I didn't, I, I didn't work on the Saw 5. And um, then they brought me back. Uh I can't. I think at six. I think at the premiere of six, I was, I was taken aside and said, "We're going to give you back the franchise," and because Marcus and Patrick were going to go on and do other things, and mm-hmm. I don't know whether they were being told the same thing. I because you never know how these things are being treated. They, there's an old axiom in Hollywood, which is Hollywood treats its writers like shit, but pays them really well to make up for it. So I, I don't know. These are things I was told. I don't know if they were common. Uh, uh, so then Paranormal Activity came out and kind of squashed that. And then Tobin Bell and I did a thing together. So what, what I think was important to realize is when the Saw franchise, the genius of James and uh, Lee was that they decided that whatever happens in the universe is whatever happens in the universe. You can literally play the Saw 4 t- t- is a parallel story with Saw 3. And so when you start doing those kind of like heady moves in, in uh, horror movies, you can do anything you want. Um, I can't tell you what Tobin and I wrote. Um, because I'm still, uh, I still have an NDA uh, in force with them, but it would blow your mind, man. Um, I didn't see the Spiral movie. I don't know what they did with that, but it was really something. 
And, um, you know, the one thing people don't realize, and maybe they do or maybe they don't, is that Saw was a short film that those two guys shot, James and Lee. And they walked around town and they showed this short film where Lee played Amanda's part, where she was, he's kind of recovering from the reverse bear trap. And they wouldn't sell it unless they got to star and direct it. And I know two other production companies that tried to buy it and they wouldn't sell it. And these guys were on top ramen. These guys were eating top ramen in like a one bedroom in West Hollywood they, or North Hollywood. They, these guys had no money, but they stuck to their guns and look at them now. You know, I have a lot of respect for those cats, man. They're very, very smart guys. Invisible Man's a great movie, by the way. I don't know if you've seen it. Lee did a killer job with it. Me. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Nice. Fantastic. Add that to but, so but long story short is, you know, Saw is a world builder. It's a rare mm-hmm. world builder in the horror franchise. So we were very aware of who was available, what actor was available, what, what we wanted to do with the story. And it was like working on a TV series for a long time. Mm. What's the new one going to look like? What's the new one going to be? And how to up the stakes and how to up the traps. And Yeah. So I've never considered those kind of elements of, you know, you're not just writing the story, but you're having to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And send, yeah, p- and literally. Casting p- and long-term. Literally. And- yeah, literally. Because we had long-term cast members. You know, we had people, you know, we had uh, with Danny Wahlberg, Donnie Wahlberg from the New Kids on the Block. He was playing Matthews and his avail was only limited because... And what Mark and Oren did, and very smartly, is they would shoot extra scenes. I can't tell you what they were, um, <laughs> because they shoot these alternative scenes and say, "Well, you have your choice. You can either have this. We killed this character, or this character is alive. Depends. Which, what do you want to do?" Mm-hmm. And so we, they were really were smart about this stuff, man. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a fun. It was a fun trip, man. It was a fun trip. And we'll, the best thing about it, and I'll end with this saying that people often talk about. When you when you see the Halloween picture that that John Carpenter made or or Sean Cunningham with Friday the Thirteenth, did they know they were making an epic? And I don't think they did when they did the first Saw movie. But when we saw it, we all knew this is gonna really be something. This is there's no denying it. There was no ambiguity. Like this is badass. Like these guys did a great job, and uh, we all knew it was something special. And I remember the, I remember there was a there was a website called the House of Jigsaw, which was a big fan site. This is like. 0405. And the and the rumor was that Saw 2 is called Hacksaw. I remember that well. <laughs> and I said, Greg, are you calling it a hacksaw? He goes, No, I'm not calling it a hacksaw. I like that. But it was like, you know, as I say, the first film is very self-contained. There's, you know, oh, yeah. in terms it was of shot in set. one location. That's that, that's one studio. The first movie's shot in one place. Yeah. That's a studio with the basement with the with the wire trap. The uh Gordon's uh, apartment is another is apartment. It was all in one building. One so building, just convenient, and, isn't and, it? For, especially for the actors. And here's the thing, which I love, blow people mind. You, you know, the bathroom set in that movie has not one single piece of real tile on it. That's a whiteboard with magic marker. What? <laughs> Wait, what? Yep. It's a white. That's that's that, that's a manufactured bathroom. There's not one piece of tiling tiling in there. It's all drawn on white pieces of paper, white whiteboard, and put on the walls. Who drew that? For the br- brilliant art department. <laughs> that's incredible. But yeah, it's a very, it's a very sort of gripping, you know, yeah. piece of, of cinema that just keeps you in a very, very limited location for a long time. And then, yeah. as I say, like number four, it it blows wide open. How how did you manage sort of the overlapping storylines? Because it wasn't just you know, obviously keeping all like the the ending hidden within the story. I don't want to say. Yeah. I mean, I'm not worried about spoilers. People who do not watch Saw Four, right, 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 it's right, a bit right. too late. But um, like the twist at the end, and then obviously you have like you say different things from saw three happening on the same timeline and how did you 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 know in your head actually juggle that in in creation that was brutal 
uh, because yeah. I was, uh, especially speaking for me only, I'm not talking for Marcus or Patrick or any of the other guys, but uh, basically I'm the, I, when they hired me, they hired me only. And I was the only person writing my screenplay. The other guys are teams. So I had, they had, they had, and we knew the first script in would be the preferred script. So uh, I, I try, I don't talk about this much more, but I got myself into a spot of bother with drugs and alcohol during that movie. And uh, I felt that if I was doing copious amounts of powder to keep me awake and I could, was putting pages up, it didn't matter because I was getting paid and then ended up becoming a real problem and I ended up getting sober 13 years ago. And I don't like to always bring that up, but I do because I feel like that's the one thing that I want to warn these creatives about is that if you're creative and you're under pressure, you tend to start leaning one way or the other. And, and yeah. a lot of people lean on drugs and alcohol. I know that Paul Schrader did. I know that Charles Bukowski did. And those are the giants in the industry. King but did. King did. Yeah, King doesn't remember writing Tommy Knockers. You know, in that fact, that blows it was, my it was, mind. Yeah, it was King's book. I had been sober for about three months. A, a very famous screenwriter got me sober. A really famous screenwriter who was also sober at the time. And I read that book. I was like, "Holy crap, man!" Like, I have the same. I have the same wastebasket full of bloody Kleenex and and and, and beers and and Coke spoons and um, I have all that stuff. But I don't have his career, so what am I doing wrong, you know? <laughs> um, but um, uh, but it was tough. It was tough back then. But you know, you just have to you have to be organized. Um, uh, it, yeah, it's 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 a hard because I really don't. It, I that that's a very spotty time for me because yeah. of this all thing. Now, when I returned to the franchise, I was sober as a judge, so mm. uh, I was flying high, and I could do I do quite well with that. But back then, man, there was a lot of pressure. Plus, Saw at the time was a cosmonaut. It was just this biggest thing ever. And we were being issued um, script notes on non-copyable paper. And we had to swear to secrecy. And we the, the we would see a cut of Saw 2. And a PA would bring over the, the DVD and and sit there and watch it with us. And then take it away. Oh, make wow. sure we didn't make a copy of it. It was a ton, a ton of... Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, from uh, a from a viewer perspective i know that one of the massive things from you know myself and all of my friends that used to watch it it was the the traps the traps were yeah. innovative they were brand new like every single film was creative in destruction and i know obviously like a lot of people listen to this aren't necessarily horror fans but just yeah the thought process that goes into some of these traps were were insane yeah i use the i use the i use the grand inquisition as a uh uh a jumping off point for the stuff i wrote Somebody told me to scour the internet and take traps from the internet. And I, I don't, I didn't think that was cool. So I didn't do that. Um, those, I don't think they did either. Those other dudes, but we always thought that when, when, we, when we first got the edict about the movies, uh, it was the idea was that John Kramer had a, uh, a home Depot card and that's it. So he would go to home Depot, which is a, a store here in the States and would buy all the stuff on his, his credit card and build the traps from there. I think they evolved. I know the 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 the, the Da Vinci trap they did in the later movies with it was like this giant turning thing, and the guy's mm -hmm. arms got twisted off. That seems like a bit much, right? Because <laughs> they were very simple. The reverse bear trap um, that James built uh, sat on the orange shelf for a long time, and I think they just sold it at auction for like three hundred grand or whatever. But it was just thing that he built out of just spare parts. It looked like found stuff, mm -hmm. you know, and um, it it always had this kind of like people I've defended this movie a few times because they say, well, it's torture porn. I go, it's not torture porn. You know, saw saw had a thematic theme about it. Uh, they had this immorality tale, right? Um, mm -hmm. 
if you look at the, uh, if, if, again, in the back of my book, there's my, my cold open for Saw 4, which has a lawyer strapped to a table, uh, strapped to a chair. And he basically, Billy comes on and says, you know, you've spent your whole life um, using your, um, your fingers to write, uh, write away people's sins, you know, because you're a lawyer, right? And so the idea was that he had to cut his own fingers off and fill these holes, or he was oh, going to wow. get, or this chair is going to fold him into two. Mm -hmm. And he's, be, he's trying to race the clock. He's, he's got his saw his own finger off the table, right? And put them in these holes, these finger holes that are too far apart. So you have to take your fingers off to do it. And so he doesn't succeed. He gets six ones off. And as, as he's mashed, as his thumb's missing, he reaches for camera and goes saw four. Nice. Right? Fingers left, right? Yeah. These were trying things we were trying to like fold in. The traps were part of the plot, you know, mm -hmm. and they all led somewhere and they all did something. And the, yeah, it was, um, uh, it's quite the trip, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely yeah, one of the things that we looked forward to in that kind of like gruesome, like can't help but watch kind of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And glad it's, it's not you, right? Glad it's not you. Oh, 100%. Yeah, teaching you a lesson. What would, what would you do? Would you, uh, uh, what would you do if you were told to cut this guy's stomach open to get the key out to take the reverse bear trap off? Yeah. And uh, that was Oren Coolis, by the way. If there's a little bit of that guy laying on the floor in that first song movie, that's Oren. Uh, nice guy. Uh, yeah. I'd cut his or I'd cut your, your stomach open to get a key out any day. <laughs> how, that, that, was the, that was the whole message of it. There wasn't like, how desperate are you to live? And can you, yeah. like, how much blood gone? will you spill to stay alive? Yeah. Yeah. I think because we're, we're starting to come up to time and there's a couple more bits I just want to touch on. Um, Cause we'd be remiss uh, if we didn't sort of touch on your friendship and relationship with the late Robert Evans. Yes. Paramount pictures. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why don't you tell us sort of, you know, how that kind of came to be, how you befriended and sort of where that took you in your career? Well, the uh, Evans, uh, I, I came in Evans orbit in uh, 07 and we well, we worked with him up to the very end, um, which was a few years ago. He passed away. You know, he, the guy's a giant. You know, he mm -hmm. he uh, he saved Paramount Pictures from becoming a, a, a cemetery. He bought Desi Lu from Lucille Ball, um, thus giving the world Star Trek. And well, De uh, Lucille gave us Lucille Ball gave us Star Trek. But um, Evans Evans was um, a trip, man. Evans was known for making Rosemary's Baby, The Godfather. Um, uh, Chinatown, Marathon Man, Paper Moon, these seminal films, you know, Goodbye Columbus. I'm thinking of the wall in his office right now with all the posters on there. And all of these films have one thing in common, which is it's only, they're only one of a kind and they're genre films. Uh, you know, uh, what do you call um, Godfather's a gangster picture. Uh, Chinatown's uh, uh, a private eye piece. Rosemary Baby is a horror movie. So he was really good at this stuff. So what happened was I, I think it was off Prodigal Son, that company had read it and they brought me in to, they had a, they had an idea from a film called Phobia and it wasn't Bob's idea. Now, Bob had a very distinctive way of speaking. Bob talked like this. Bob had a very kind of, uh, you, you could trust me. You know, this is the way I talk. I'm Robert Evans, right? I was going to ask you to do the impression, I'm the but kid. I wasn't going to because I was scared to, but I'm, you just- I'm the kid, on. yeah. So I spent a lot of time. And so he, they had this thing called phobia, which was basically, um, phobia was, how do you put it? Like Final destination, but with phobia. So whatever it was that scared you would come get you, right? If you, if you read this book, this grimoire, and it read for different, and this is like, the, this is, you know, this is like, you know, 06, 07. So that was the thing to do back then. 
So I work up this big pitch, and I had the end of the picture dealt with this woman who had agoraphobia, of course, and she ended up in this closet spraying bug spray in her own throat because the bugs were coming out of her mouth, whatever. Something really pleasant like that. I'm sitting next to Evans, and there's this table full of Paramount executives and stuff, and Evans is sitting there. And his, his brother had just passed. By the way, his brother had produced Tootsie and a bunch of other movies too, Charlie. He had passed like a month ago, so I, was, I knew it was a sensitive time for Bob. So I was like, well, I don't want to go pitch Bob this movie. Well, you got to, you got to, because he needs to hear it. So we go to pitch it, and I'm singing my heart out, man. I'm, I'm, I'm pitching my guts out. I'm pitching my guts out. And Evans, Evans turns to me and goes, I would never see that fucking movie. Why would anybody <laughs> want to see that fucking movie? Like, I don't know, Bob. And he, goes, he goes, well, tell you what, Tom. What do you have that you could steal from Rosemary's Baby? And I said, well, Bob, I don't want to steal from you if you're sitting next to me. If you want to leave the room, I'll be happy to steal from you then. <laughs> Um, so that project didn't, that project died on the vine, but then I spent years, we, uh, my partner, uh, Adam and I were doing a, a, a limited series about his time at Paramount Pictures running the movie studio, um, because it was very, it was Mad Men meets, uh, it was about the making of the Godfather, which they're doing now. They're doing another piece of source material, but it was about him running the studio and it was really great. And we were, we were chugging along there and Bob was into it because Bob had done a movie called Kid Stays in the Picture. Which was his early legacy. This is the second his second act. We were calling it. Um, we we're going to tell his his original story from his point of view and stuff. And he ended up um, backing off the project. Um, don't know why, but um, kind of came as a blow. But it's okay. He was, and then he, he then he passed a few uh, a few months later. But he was a great influence. You know, he was very kind. And his his organization, Jay Sakura, who ran his company, gave me an office at Paramount for a long time. And uh, we developed a lot of projects over there, and it was it was a lot of fun. And the guy was a legend. So um, to have spent time with Evans at his house, breaking bread with him, eating caviar, actually Iranian caviar, mm-hmm. uh, uh, being friends with his, his butler Alan. I don't know if he's they're called butlers anymore, but that's what he was. It was it was a great it was a great fun story. And hearing stories about Steve McQueen. Mm-hmm. And all the stories about how Will Chamberlain got locked in his bathroom one time. and <laughs> Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating guy. I'm glad to have met him. Know yeah. him. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth in, so, in sort of um, terms of what the relationship was, but was he more of a mentor to you or was he more of a friend or was it kind of like a bit of both along the way? Um, he wasn't a friend per se. Um, Bob, uh, Bob had one friend, which is Jack Nicholson and Dustin Hoffman. And um, I wouldn't call him a friend, but I certainly would call him somebody who he liked me and I liked him. He, he, he read the DeLorean script after James Toback um, didn't deliver his draft. They, they took mine. They, they optioned my draft and we joined forces. At one point there were five DeLorean movies going on. <laughs> and um, I was the key guy. Cause we had Catherine DeLorean, the daughter's life rights and um, sticky wicket, man, uh, Hollywood, Hollywood gets bad because um People, uh, when you get to a certain level, people smell money and they start attaching themselves to your projects. And when they do that, they become boat anchors and dead weight. So when a, when a project comes across a, a, a buyer's desk, like a studio's desk, well, it's got seven producers on it and each one of them want a quarter million dollars. So to start this project, I have to, I have to pay out $2.3 million. I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. So it got sticky. It got, it got, it got sticky. <clears throat> yeah. But, um, you know, it is, it's Hollywood. Yeah. And just to give um, my listeners a little bit of a, an impression on, on Robert Evans as well, I came across this quote from an interview that he was on um, 
where he's talking about critics and he said i'd rather have a picture that was respected artistically and didn't do as big a business than a picture that was a pulp picture that went on to do big business um and there's definitely i think we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier but another one of his quotes that I came across was i'd rather be remembered than be rich and i just wondered yeah, in terms of yeah. your own style and sort of you know your journey does that resonate with you or is, do you sort of see things a little bit differently well uh with myself or with bob about with bob. yourself uh, I just wanted, you know, I used to when I was when I was first starting off. I wanted, I wanted all the rich. I wanted, the, I wanted a Lamborghini, and I wanted a house in the hills, and I wanted a four picture deal, and I wanted a blind deal so I could just, you know, blind deals when you turn anything and you want and you call it a script. It can be a it can be a hundred pages of this sucks written out, like in kind of Jack Torrancey kind of way, yeah. uh, and turn it in, and then they have to pay for it. But I, you know, I just turn on. I like the work. I just like the work. I don't. Uh, I'm not driven by money, and I'm not driven by accomplishments. I do feel we were screwed out of a uh, MTV Scream Award in, in 06, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, that would have been fun to have. But um, yeah. no, I think it's just it's it's a good job if you can get it, and um, it's about being creative in the day. You know, it's about exercising that creativity. Sometimes exercising those demons. Um, I, I'm always fond of saying that the worst day in Hollywood beats the best day in a pencil factory. I'm not dismissing people in a pencil factory, by the way, but because um, Hollywood can be pretty brutal, but it's it, it comes with the territory. Yeah. And uh, I just want to do good work is basically what it is. It's about. Yeah, um, I do have one question from um, our mutual friend, Julie Heiner, who yeah. says uh, you wrote the scripts for and directed Striking Point, which was released in 1995. Did you yeah. plan on directing it as you were writing it? And what was it like to direct the film that you wrote? Well, uh, as I mentioned before, it's a whole different world uh, when I did Point. I, yeah, I was going to direct it because there's nobody else to direct it. Now, I'll tell you the movie I wrote right now I'm directing, uh, which is, uh, it's, I think it's a more apt because things have changed so differently. Back then, it was like I was a key grip, so I knew a can cameras could pull this thing off. So that's, that's, how, that's why I directed that, and I did a terrible job. That movie's, that movie's very flawed, man, but it was finished. I made a bunch of money. And that's that was what that was to do. Now this movie I'm doing now, uh, it's called The Entity Haunting. It is based on the Doris Bleiter story that was made famous in the 1982 film The Entity, uh, about a woman who's attacked and raped by a ghost in Culver City. Barbara Hershey was in it. Now that was a story that was based on the Frank DiFolita book, which happens to be right here, unread, a used copy, unread. Because I can't use anything in it, and so I didn't read it. And I'm going on record as saying I haven't read this. I just bought it in, for two thousand used bookstore. <laughs> but that was that was the a really scary movie. And we're remaking it because we're, we're retelling the story because we have. I spent two years with the son of Doris Bither and learned the true story of what happened to her. And it's more terrifying than anything that's been is in that that fictional book. So that movie is planned meticulously for me to direct it to play to my strengths, not my weaknesses. And my strengths are characters and actors, not special effects. I'm going to leave the special effects to somebody who knows better than I do. Hmm. But um, I think if, the, if your audience is interested in getting a career, the best thing to do really is make your own movie. It really is. It's write something that's cool. Right? You can do a short or, you know, something contained five or six friends locked in a cabin and they read from the grimoire that releases the devil in the woods i guess that's i guess that's evil dead but maybe come with something a little more original than that um that um there's so many there's so much to do now that you you can write and direct your own stuff it's just it's stunning to me yeah 
which is perfect. I was about to ask what's a good place for screenwriters out there who are looking to, you know, actually step into that arena and really try and make an impact and potentially get some money. What is a good place for them to start? Yeah, it's is, just is it, it making a film. Yeah, it is making a film. Uh, I truly believe that. But you have to make it really original, though. Uh, mm-hmm. People think, well, it's going to be, we're going to play, we're going to do 10 Little Indians. 10 Little Indians, are, familiar, are you familiar with that concept, 10 Little Indians? I feel it's like my, I am, but not enough. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's a screenwriting thing or what, but that's where you have 10 characters, and they all have flaws. It's, it's, it's basically what uh, um, Event Horizon is based on. So the one woman misses her son, the son comes out and kills her in Event Horizon. This one guy... Lawrence Fishburne worried about somebody dying in a fiery death. Well, now he's 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 haunted by the guy in the fiery death. But that's Ten Little Indians. So it's basically yeah. your weaknesses come alive and kill you. It's kind of what phobia was, really. Mm-hmm. Those guys stole that too. But um, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but but make it more original. You know, like I talk about this in my book, which is um, uh, familiar with a twist. So if it's gonna be if you're gonna make a movie and you love the Halloween movies, we'll make it a female. Yeah, Michael Myers. You know, add to it more than that, but. That's a place to start. And see if you can't get some traction that way. I think that's a great thing to do. I'm jealous. Man, back in my day, we were shooting Super 8, you know, scratch on <laughs> lasers. It was hard to do. Like you say, some of the things that I've seen shot on just an iPhone are incredible. It's amazing what you can do with just these things that like, most oh, yeah. of us have in our pockets. Yeah, it's, it's stunning. It's, uh, I, 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 and this computer I'm talking to right now, I've got a 26-inch 20, Mac, and I've got Final Cut Pro. I had a post-production company in the 90s. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this equipment and this 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 thing i'm on right now does a thousand times more than what i could do and it cost me a couple grand it's amazing what you can do it's amazing what you can do yeah people forget that i think very very easy just they do how how lucky we are to live in this time compared to you know how very very true very true everything everything was difficult um we are gonna have to pull this to a close i'm afraid um and i definitely have a thousand more questions so you know as we mentioned earlier if you're up for a part two we can always try and and put that in um but just for my listeners where can they find out more about yourself and all that you've got going on well um if they're interested uh workingscreenwriter.com uh is kind of like my portal when i'm not working uh i teach these classes and the reason why i started teaching classes and wrote the book was because I couldn't find um, Blake Schneider. Blake Snyder's a good guy. He wrote, he wrote um, Save the Cat. Mm-hmm. But these, Blake Snyder um, wrote this film called Stop It, My Mom Will Shoot uh, with Stallone and, and, and Estelle Getty in the 90s, and it's really great. But the business had changed so much since the 90s. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to tell people like, really how it works? Mm-hmm. How, how does it really work? And also how to write like, scary movies. And that's what I do with working screenwriter. Working screenwriter is because I am a working screenwriter. By, I make my money writing, not teaching. I teach because I really enjoy it. Um, it's a chance to uh, talk to me about, you know, and, and everybody asks about agents and stuff. And I always say, well, worry about your script first. Yeah. But um, it's a way to, um, to talk to a professional. Uh, so it's, it's workingscreenwriter.com. I can be reached through there. And I don't have any classes scheduled at the moment. Um, I might. It depends on my my schedule is. But uh, I post on there uh, every once in a while. Perfect. And how about socials? Where can people find you on social media? Uh, and- yeah, in Tom- Thomas Fenton underscore Insta is my Perfect. public Instagram. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's about it. And Twitter is at Thomas Fenton. Excellent. I'll have um, links to that all in the show notes. Anyone who wants to pick up a copy of that book, I recommend it. Go over onto the link again in the show notes. It'll just catch it on Amazon or all the good places. Um, And I will say a big thank you to Thomas for joining me on the podcast today. 
a massive thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in. And as always, if you're looking to level up your writing and activate your author career, head on over to activateyourauthors.com to find out all about our community, our resources, and everything else that we've got going on. One more time, Thomas, thank you so much for joining me. Thank it's been you. A genuine pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. I hope I didn't talk too much. No, it's fantastic. It's just the right amount. <laughs> Thanks, man. All right, Thanks. see you next week. Activate your energy. Activate your energy.